Hi, and welcome to Office Hours. Do not attempt to adjust your TV or your YouTube. Um, it's Mitch Hill standing in for Alex Lindsay, who will be joining us a little bit later on. If you like Office Hours and you'd like to get involved, go to officehours.global to find out more how you can uh, participate as a uh, producer, asking questions and doing other things. The other way you can ask questions, if you want to do them right now, is to use the QR code right here. The little box to myself side there. Uh, take a shot with your camera there and uh, make sure you uh, ask your questions. You can also get uh, uh, askofficehours.com and that'll get you into the program. Today's Saturday. Uh, we will answer as many questions as we get and when we're done answering, we just finish. That's how it works. That's uh, what Office Hours is all about. Thanks for being here. Let's get it all started. Courtney, what's our first question? Well, the first one comes in from uh, Mr. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, and he says, Jabra Speak 2.75 displayed at Zoomtopia includes a microphone quality indicator, an LED that changes color based upon the presenter's voice quality. How? How do we do that? Thoughts? Yeah, Jabra's been around a long time, and they've made some great stuff. Uh, I'm sure you have an answer for that, Courtney, so why don't you kick it off? Well, I don't have one of these, but I do have the original... Uh, uh, Echo, Amazon Echoes, which use the same technique, which is beamforming. Multiple microphones that are mixed into a matrix and beamformed, and it chooses quality based on the direction, you know, which microphone is the the loudest, and it's kind of like a Dugan Auto mix, only a different mix matrix. Uh, and so it can probably just generate a... Uh, it, it lights up an LED probably from the direction side of the person who's speaking. This thing is a puck. It's, uh, let's take a look at it. It's designed to sit in the middle of a table uh, like this. Uh, I think the LED changing color on the quality of your mic is just kind of a, a gimmick that's a byproduct of the uh, beamforming. Do you think it's a uh, question of the quality of the reception of the voice or the quality of the person speaking? It's probably the strength of the signal that's coming in from a specific direction. And if it's coming in equally from all directions, then it's not as good. If it's, you know, more, if it's stronger coming in from microphone one than microphone two, three, or four, then uh, uh, it'll give it a higher quality rating. So it depends on the strength and the direction, probably. My Hard guess, I didn't program the thing. Keep that in mind. Thanks very much. What's the next question? Next question comes in from James Babbitt in San Diego, <clears throat> and he says, Great interview yesterday on gray matter with Michael Krasny and Ian McCaig. Uh, Ian's video seemed to focus and defocus. Is there any way to fix this with software in post? I don't think you can really uh, fix a soft image uh, in software because you're dealing with... Uh, in between Gaussian blurs and things like that. It just doesn't, you can use a sharpen filter, but uh, I rarely get great results from that. So it's slightly off, you could fix that. But uh, the person that should ask, answer why it was doing that would of course be Alex, who will be joining us a little bit later on. So we'll move on to our next question. Alrighty then. Uh, Douglas Carmichael has a question. He says, what communication tools do you prefer for keeping large distributed teams connected asynchronously? Would Slack be the most versatile or has something else taken over? 
Well, here we use Unity for our comms in the background, and that's asynchronous by nature because we have uh, the ability to hear comments and uh, also respond to them. Um, as far as uh, Slacker, I'm, I'm afraid I don't know. I haven't uh, used that particular program, but uh, maybe uh, Chris Fenwick has an answer for us. So when Douglas says asynchronous, he means I can send a message out and you can receive it when you're ready to receive it. So Unity is the opposite of that because it's you have to be listening as I, as I talk. Slack is a popular um, one. And I know a lot of companies that use it. I've used it on one or two projects because we were told we had to. And um, I wasn't crazy about it. Uh, I like just text messaging. And I know that's not a comms tool. I get it. And it doesn't have the benefit of being able to, you know, attach a file and stuff like that. But I just, my preference is to minimize the number of new pieces of software somebody has to log on to and make an account for just to do a job. So my preference is to just keep it simple. But a lot of people like Slack. Yeah, and if it were uh, less than asynchronous, remember the old days when they used to go over and they had to do only one thing at a time because they only had one channel, so... No, 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 but, but Mitch, to be clear, the, the, the point is, is like a text message... I can send the message, and you don't, you don't have to pick up your phone when I send you the message. You get to read it on your own terms. So if you're in the middle of something and you look at it 30 seconds or 30 minutes or 30 days later, that's, that's what Douglas means by asynchronous communication. I can put the information out there. You get to receive it on your own terms. Roger that. Okay, Courtney. Over. Uh, yeah, those of us here at Office Hours at the moment are using Discord uh, because that is a good <clears throat> asynchronous communication system and it uses uh, private servers. So I think we're not, uh, uh, you know, all of our data and communications isn't going to a public server somewhere seen by anybody outside of our Discord group. So uh, it works well for us. People do use Slack and a variety of other means of communications, but I haven't used Slack, uh, so I can't really speak on that. Alex? Yeah, yeah. I, I ran the last company I owned for about five years on Slack. <laughs> so so it's, it's definitely something that, and it was one of those things that when I, um, when we started doing it, there was very much of a wire, like when someone, what happens with Slack is some producer starts to use it for some project, like, hey, we're just going to use Slack for it and it's free. And, and you're like, why are we using this? Why are we using this? And then within like two months, you're like, someone will send you an email and you're like, why are you emailing me this? This should just be in Slack. <laughs> so, so anyway, so you get into a, a mode of, of wanting to have that communication, the ability to have it all threaded um, and the ability to, you know, and, and again, asynchronous the, the thing that I didn't like about, the hard part for me is finding messages and threads inside of text only, inside of messages. You know, it's not something, not a way to run a company in my opinion, but, but I mean, I had a, we had, at the time I had 40 employees. So, so it was, it was, it was a lot of, there was a lot of chatter. And what was nice about it was we had, the way we set up Slack is we had channels and we do this a little bit inside of Discord as well, but we had lots of channels. And so as a producer, I saw all the channels, but I didn't necessarily interact with all of them. Um, and then we, you know, people could obviously do tons of direct stuff back and forth, but the channel, every time we built a new event, I, we would build this set of channels. The producers saw all the channels 
And then everyone else, like the logistics, the people managing, like who's flying where, and another one's about the gear, and another one is about the the show flow. And there's like all these little groups that are all talking amongst themselves about things that need to be done. Producers get to see all of it going by. Just dip, like, I wonder what they're doing about that. And you'd go in and ask a question, and it was inside of that group. And so it was a very powerful way to separate those things out and make it all work. You can do the same thing in Discord, as, as Courtney said. Um, I use Discord now. Like, I don't, you know, the problem for me is that I have so many other things that I'm doing in Discord. It's really because it's a part of my social life as well as my professional life, it's easier to keep it all in one place. So, um, and Slack, you know, we, we had, thought about using Slack and some organizations will use Slack as a kind of a value add. So Patreon uses it a lot um, as a value add to, um, you know, if you're paying 10 bucks a month, you get to be part of the Slack group or 20 bucks a month. It is crazy powerful in the political arena. So um, an unknown thing that, that happens in politics is that a lot of politicians have these like of their most valued followers or whatever. They have like a Slack channel, <laughs> you know, that they talk to. And, um, and those things are, those are, you know, invite only kind of things and it helps, you know, people feel connected. So, um, and, and because it's not, and, and it's partially special because it's not Discord. Like they're not just sending you to Discord server, they're sending you to a Slack channel. You know, politicians call them Slackies? Slackies, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, so anyway, so there, it, 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 it's a very useful product. Um, it is, it also manages, you know, privacy and stuff like that. We, you know, we are private-ish in Discord, but I don't think Discord promises us the same level of privacy as we get with, uh, we would get with something else. Anyway, go ahead, Chris. Explain threaded like I don't understand what that means. I've heard people say that and I don't, I don't get it. A thread means that, you know, I can be talking, I, I can have a thread that is just that conversation that's going through. So for instance, um, you know, a threaded conversation, you know, tends to be like, this is all the, you know, emails, if they're not threaded, are just all the emails that are coming in as they come in and you see who was copied. Once they're threaded, you click on that email, and you can see all the emails that not, not as if they were copied into it, but it keeps track of all of them um, and groups them together. And so a threaded conversation means that we're, we've decided that this, well, this is the way I define threaded conversation is this is the conversation we're having and that conversation can be created almost on the, well, really on the fly in Slack of like, we're going to create a new little group here, like here. And then inside of that conversation, you know, we're just talking about that. And in Slack, we used, we, I think we probably had a hundred channels in there of people just creating things that we need to keep track of in the office. When do we need coffee? <laughs> like, you know, like, what, you know, like there was a, there was like a cafe thread that was, um, or channel that was there. And so, but you can, by, when you create the threads, it means the people that are connected, you know, people that are connected to it can keep track of what just happened rather than the problem with non-threaded conversations is I say, I'm interested in something, this thing, and then three other people talk. And then another person replies to this thing that was above it. <laughs> That's a not a threaded conversation. It's very confusing because you have two, you have like four conversations going on in the same channel, you know. And that and a non so a non threaded conversation becomes really painful. Like you know, and so you have to like I know when I'm in other Discord channels that don't have as many channels as we do. I mean, Discord servers that don't have as many channels as we do. They have a lot less channels, and the result is is that you kind of wait. Like when someone puts a new thing in, like when you you let people respond to it, <laughs> and you don't just throw. It's kind of seen as disrespectful to throw another subject in right after someone put the first subject in because you got to let everybody kind of respond to that one first. So it, you, you you get into this kind of back and forth with folks that you don't need to do if you have channels that channels or threads that will manage it. So I'm working on an edit right now, and. 
I think because I don't use Slack, the producer said, the producer just started a text me- a group text message between a producer, the producer, director, yeah. EP, and myself. I think there was one or two other people in there. And, and, and when they're not talking to you in that thread, they're, they're, they're in that group, they're, they're saying, oh, Chris. No, no, <laughs> and that, which is fine. Wow, Alex, you say that like I don't think that that happens every day at your house. Um, so, no, but my point is, is that that group message is disposable. So in a week when this edit's done, I'll delete it and it's only about this. So is that kind of a yeah, threaded what we would discussion? Do is- when we built when we built these channels, we had a set of, of of channels that went for every project that we built, right? So these are the I don't know eight channels or ten channels that get or ten or ten threads or I don't know how we define it, but anyway, ten sub channels for the main channel. So let's say we're doing a we're doing um, a project in Par- you know the I don't know the the Paris Expo or something like that. Under Paris Expo, there'd be all the, the, the again logistics, planning, whatever that all those things are that'd be under there. As soon as we finish the project, we'd either delete it or archive it, and then it just disappears. You know, then it's you know, but it's mm. there. But but really, what's kind of nice about it is all it, we we generally archived everything. So then, what would happen is, what did we do back then? We go back to that conversation, and people would be you know pinning things like you know all the you know. Uh, the hotels that we're going to stay in, the whatever, you know, and, and so it kept a lot of information very quickly. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm, you know, late to the party, but I think a discussion about ways to use Slack in particular might be interesting. Yeah. It's a good I mean, uh, Monday discussion. So we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll put it on the plate. It's good. So we can talk, I'm sure all of us use it differently. I'm going to go see if I still have it on my phone. <laughs> right, next question. Bye. Thanks, Mr. Roddy Hopsoy from Tromso, Norway, ask, uh, what lenses to use on Blackmagic Ursa Broadcast G2 EF mount or Cinema 6K L mount for green screen work on background plates? Fixed versus Zoom's EF versus L mount. Remote controllable versus manual. Keen in Ultimat 12. Jesse? Uh, for this question, I'm going to assume that you're talking more about static corporate type green screen work and not action filmmaking type green screen work. If it's the latter, the answer is infinitely more complicated. Um, in terms of lens choice, you want a expensive lens versus a cheap lens. You want it to be a tack sharp lens and a very, very clean image. Um, so whether it's L mount or EF, I would just go with a really high quality lens. If I had to pick between the uh, fixed and zoom, I would go with fixed because those can be cleaner builds. Um, what, what you really want is for your subject to be tack sharp and the green screen behind them to be slightly out of focus if possible. So you want to be hanging around a 4.0, 5.6, somewhere on there with the lens. And that means you want a whole lot of light because you also want to be at the camera's uh, native ISO. You should be at uh, ISO 400 or below because you want as minimal noise as possible in the image that you're shooting. But I think the real trick of it is an evenly lit and very well lit and very green screen. And uh, Alex, is it okay if I toss to you because you speak on that uh, very well on the the importance of a clean green 
Yeah, I mean, the the main thing is, is that, um, I, again, I, I agree with what Jesse said. I, I would use EF just because they're easier to find than L mounts. There's just a wider wider range. L mount is, EF is the Canon mount, and L mount was developed by by uh, Leica, and it's, um, but it's used by a lot of different folks. So I think that you're probably, but I don't think you're going to find any difference in the lens itself other than you get more choices. Uh, I, you know, we have shot with... Um, uh, fixed lenses, but the, the the main thing is is that it, oftentimes you're trying to reframe things quickly and moving the camera back and forth or changing the lenses slows things down. I do agree that it's sharper to do that um, to use a a, um, a prime lens, but it, but I think that I we typically have gone with zoom lenses because we're lazy um, anyway. And um, so and, they, and it hasn't made a huge difference. Um, the I do agree, high quality lens is important. Vignetting is not your friend. So um, any kind of thing that would vignette, you don't want to be on either end of the lens. So if you get a twenty four. Uh, to 70 lens, which is a pretty typical lens for us to use. The the Canon L series 24 to 70 is a very typical lens um, for us to use. We probably wouldn't use it much wider than 30 or much longer than 60, um, you know, out of the concern that sharp, both sharpness and, uh, and little vignetting can be possible, especially on the way, on, all the way out. Um, and it's really subtle, but you notice it when you're actually keying the footage. So um, the other, the big, the most important thing that Jesse um, spoke to was the evenness of the lens. I can't, I don't do green screen. I don't say I can't do green screen, but I won't do a green screen without RGB parade. So the RGB parade is your the output of your camera. Now it's gotten really easy. Most There's lots and lots of things that have RGB parades. And what you want to do is you want to make sure that you're separating, you're getting good separation with your green screen and then that you're, that the luminance across it. And again, we're assuming that you're doing corporate, you know, there's a lot of complications if you're doing a VFX shot. But if you're doing someone standing up in front of a background or sitting in front of a background, there's no excuse to not have a perfect screen. Perfect screen. Like, and, and you know, I used to do a 10 to 11 hours of green screen a week. And it was almost automated. We had, a, we had an intern, we were paying $15, $15 an hour. <laughs> They'd sit there and just, just run through it because, and we would check it and it was done. Um, and so um, the, uh, so the uh, what's important there is you've got to separate that green screen has to be lit separately from the uh, subject. We use large sources on either end and flag them off. We typically use green bulbs or green LEDs or green gel on the. It's called green on green. It's really dangerous if you don't flag it properly. But if you flag it, flag it properly, you get a very pure green um, with a uh, for your back for your foreground. Uh, and then minimum of five feet. We usually shoot for ten feet to the screen. Um, and so uh, those kinds of things, you, that's how you can mass produce green screen and get every hair, every single hair. And the Ultimate 12 will, um, you know, if you give it, it'll do well with less than what I just described. If you give it uh, what I just described, we've tested the, the Ultimate 12 and it will key water. Like you can see the, like the, the highlights and everything else. It'll feel like a physical thing of water in front of a green screen and it will key it properly. Um, it'll key, it'll key, I mean, Ultimate will key, key, take plants that are green in front of a green screen and key them perfectly. <laughs> so if you give it, if you give it a very tight solution, uh, it will give you an incredible product. So um, if you have any other questions about that, let us know because it's a, Ultimate 12 is a pretty amazing piece of hardware. I, I had the Ultimate 11, uh, 444 and I paid $35,000 for that. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I, be bitter, bitter with me. I did the same thing. Yeah, the great thing <laughs> with the Ultimate is when somebody turns their head and they have glasses on is being able to deal with that little spot right there 
um, it does a great job of it. Yeah, and, and Black Magic improved it. I mean, when they, uh, you know, when they after they bought it, they made it not only much less expensive, but actually much better. So they've they've done a good job with that product, as they often do when they buy it. Uh, companies that haven't haven't figured out their financial model, but have some good core technology. That's Black Magic's um, you know, mo. Next question. Matt Cool from Montreal, Canada, looking for a small eight-channel digital audio mixer with sliders for small live events, but haven't found anything. Does one exist? Uh, Chris? Definitely, Matt. There's all kinds of choices. What I would ask, the, the question I would ask first, though, is do you want your audio uh, to leave your de- device? If you're mixing separate devices that have to be all wired together, then yes, you definitely want a, an actual mixer. My preference these days is to do as much stuff inside the box as possible. And what I mean by that is I don't want to pull things out of my computer, take it through a piece of hardware, and then pump it back into the computer. So my current audio setup is I'm using these little Korg Nano controllers, and yes, I have two of them. It's like it's almost like having two MEs of worth of stuff. and they run a software-based mixer. So everything remains in the box. I'm not taking anything out of the computer to just to mix it. I'm controlling it inside the box. Um, the downside with a mixer like that is um, it's a MIDI mixer. So when you first fire up in the morning, you have to touch all the faders. Otherwise, where they physically are in the throw may not match what was left behind or what booted in the software. So you have to kind of wiggle everything. Also, I want to point out this because it's kind of fun. Those three white faders and the red fader are super important. And I actually just used nail polish to to colorize them so that they were really obvious to find. And the, the red one especially, that's what... that. That fader, when I push that fader up, it pumps my sound from my computer out to Zoom if I'm editing with somebody. And uh, I make it red so it's easy to see and I can glance over right now and know that I'm not sending anything out to Zoom except for my, my, uh, my voice. You know, I, I don't know of a lot of them that are physical, that are mixers, but there are a couple that are kind of this hybrid where they have um, they have digital sliders and so on and so forth. The QSC TouchMix, which Mickey pointed out, TouchMix 8 um, has, a, has a screen. Uh, I had some bad experiences with that mixer, <laughs> so, so I, I wouldn't jump on that one immediately, but, uh, but it's, I, it could have been user error, but it was, we had... It was a hard couple hours uh, getting that one to work. Um, the uh, the other one that we have used in the past for very small events is the DL sixteen oh eight. That's from Mackie, and what it does is it has a it has a hardware. Um, device that you plug into, and then as an iPad, it'll lock, let you lock an iPad into it, um, and uh, and so then you have the iPad controls or your sliders to make that work. And so um, it's a little quirky. It's kind of like the controller for the uh, XR eighteen or the XR twelve, um, which is the thing that I would probably. I mean, if I was, if you as soon as you said digital mixer, where, where my mind went immediately was uh, XR eighteen or XR twelve. Um, I've used a you know had a, we've had a lot of. Uh, XR18s and and been really happy with them. So I mean, for what they do, they, there's the delay in the audio drives me a little crazy. Which is that it you add it as an FX as instead of just as a channel delay. <laughs> like I don't, I think my brain every time I look at it, I just go, I don't understand why they do that. Um, but uh, but that could be possible. Uh, next question. 
Next question coming in from Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. Here's a gear acquisition systems alert or syndrome. I've been taking the next plunge into the Blackmagic design world with the purchase of a used pocket cinema 4K with a cage. I'm thinking of adding some cine glass, and I'm wondering what follow focus units I should be looking at. I think the thing you have to decide is whether you want it to be a mechanical, like a, a mechanical follow focus, or a, a an actual um, motored follow focus. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, if you're going to motored, um, I highly recommend the Tilda uh, line. They have a Nano and a Nano Two. I think they just came out with. They're flawless, and they got a great fizz that works with it. Yeah, the um, the the DJI I think makes them all as well as Teradek. So those are other ones to look at there. Um, you know, none of them are going to be Prestons, but they're but they are. Um, there a lot of them are, are pretty uh, pretty good. They're just it's what you're looking for is what the resolution of the motor is, um, and how many bits. Uh, go ahead, Jesse. And once you get into that, uh, remember that you have to have that camera and the lens very very securely mounted because uh, the motors can bump the lens and jiggle the camera. So really really lock that thing down. Go, ahead, Chris. Mitchell, can you explain fizz? Oh, that's the uh, uh, focus and uh, zoom device that's handheld that you can either uh, adjust it remotely or some of them are attached to the uh, was, side of the camera. But it's very, very softball. cool. I was giving you a softball. Focus, <laughs> iris, zoom. Yeah. Three I mean, controls. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the bottom line is with, with these motors, it's, it's hard to make them cheap. So as you start spending more on these on these little motors, you you start getting higher resolution, more stability. Um, those are you know those are the things that you want to kind of look for. Um, we haven't had a ton of experience with the less expensive ones, but um, but we've uh, uh, but you know you should give them a shot. Best thing to do is order them from somewhere you can return them, <laughs> play with them hard, and then send them back if they don't work. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, asking, any word on when Small Rig will release an iPhone 15 Pro Max-specific product? Will it have an SSD drive mount incorporated? Mechanical switch, shortcut button? Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I don't know about any uh, Small Rig uh, updates for the iPhone 15, but I want to come out with something for the iPhone 15 now that it has USB-C. It's a combination power bank and a four terabyte hard drive, all the single USB-C connection, just a short jumper that goes in, and it holds itself on the back with the bag uh, uh, support magnets. You know, with the uh, I, I think magnetic charging. I, I think we're going to see some pretty crazy solutions. You know, with with the fifteen, keep your camera powered for a long time, record for great lengths but, of time. I could imagine someone building something that you slide your 15 into and it's got like the moment lenses on the front and it's got battery and hard drive and it plugs in and, and it's got XLRs sticking out the side. And um, yeah, <laughs> I need to redo them. I posted that video on my on my own YouTube channel, the video I did, uh, I don't know, 13 years ago or something like that um, about the original one. And, and I built I built up this little shoulder rig for it and everything else was all excited. And now I feel like I need to. We need to machine a new one to to uh, to show off show off what could be done there. Yeah, go, Chris. What do you think the chances are, Alex, of Apple marketing um, camera OS to camera manufacturers? You know, we've talked about that for a long time. <laughs> so, so it's it. They won't market it to. I think we we had talked about. I mean, and 
I know because every time someone got close to it, everyone would ping me on Twitter going, hey, did you see this thing? And, and you know, Sony made one that you could slide your camera into. There's, you know, the, Sony made one that you could, you could clip a full frame lens and, and sensor. It was like a, just a sensor holder with a, with a lens and it would tie into your iPhone. So you'd use your iPhone as a thing. And then you had the DxO, of course, which we, I actually made the demo video for them um, because we were excited about it. And so there was, there was, uh, there's been a bunch of, you know, solutions here. I don't think Apple would give up its OS for that, but I think that having the phone slide into now a USB-C, there's enough IO there that you could have it, you could build a rig you know, it looks like a camera rig that you slide the phone into. It could even have a sensor on the front that you just have, you know, the, the hardest part for camera manufacturers, especially smaller ones, is building an interface. And they don't have to do that here, you know. And so they, you know, they wouldn't have to make up their own interface and their own LED, you know. So if you could slide the camera and the camera becomes the brain, you could have a one-inch sensor on the front if you wanted to and put it, you know, put it in there and, and have the camera run the whole thing, have you know, and have it all recording to the camera now that the camera can do... Uh, ProRes, and so there's a, it's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opportunities there, either using the camera lenses themselves or, or interface. But USB C to the camera, it kind of changes a lot of things. So it'll I be think easy. we should just make the announcement video for this product. Just make it, like make it all Apple-y. We should do a Kickstarter. Say, we should for do a more Kickstarter. information, contact Tim at Apple.com. I think we should just do a Kickstarter. We should raise a quarter million dollars and then say we're going to go for research in the in the Bahamas. <laughs> and say, sorry, we couldn't make it. I was like, Didn't a quarter work. million dollars? That's nowhere near enough. Oh, okay, that's plenty. <laughs> plenty for a summer in a, in a, in a really nice chalet. <laughs> so, no one's ever going to do a Kickstarter with me now. I've ruined everything. I would never do that, by the way. <laughs> real, real, real quickly, if you don't mind, a, a good friend of mine got a huge promotion at his at his company years ago. And I said, what does this mean? What kind of scratch are you taking home? And he goes, I don't want to talk about that. I go, it's a public company. I can look it up. And he goes, and he tells me, he goes, but the coolest part is, is I can sign a PO for a quarter of a million dollars, no questions asked. And I said, you mean I could send you an invoice for a quarter? And he goes, well, yeah, you could do that and I could pay it once and then right. I'll never have a job again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got enough, enough uh, it'll give you enough rope to hang yourself with. Next question. From Talalek Lopez Waterman in Phoenix, Arizona. Once again, I'm finding some frustration with the DaVinci Resolve delivery page. So I'm revisiting this question from about a year ago. Can I add a Kodak option to the options in the delivery tab? And also H.265 is failing. Do I need to install H.265? Go ahead, Jesse. I'm assuming that what you mean by adding options is that you want to change the... The, the options entirely that are available for you in the um, in the in the delivery tab, and I don't believe that you can do that. If what you're asking is, can you set all your options and build a preset? Uh, you can absolutely save as a new preset right there. Um, yes, it is not the it, it's not the least frustrating delivery tab we've ever seen in our lives, uh, and we never use anything except for Apple ProRes. We do our H.264, H.265 encoding outside of Resolve. What we want to do is get the, the mezzanine codec out of Resolve and then work with it in other more flexible pieces of software. Yeah, I, uh, I love Resolve. I'm in Resolve almost every day. <laughs> so, and I would never, ever, never, never, ever, ever 
export H.264, H.265 out of Resolve. It is designed as a proxy. It is not designed, it, the way it's set up is it's going to export something that basically is at proxy level. It's not going to be something you could actually deliver to anybody. Um, I always do ProRes out, as Jesse does, and then I take it into compressor and compress it down to whatever I need it to be. Um, now, I, I will admit that I generally do that out of Final Cut too. Like, you know, I, I generally always export ProRes um, because it takes it's faster to export and then I can just keep on repeating the compression to get what I want um, instead of having to like, oh, I got to send it back out again. I don't really export, yeah, my project without it just being the, in ProRes. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I concur. Like, think about this. Any edit has, you know, masks and feathers and keys and and uh, maybe a Gaussian blur behind it, but, but, you know, all that stuff. And so every one of those processes takes cycles and slows down your export. That's why quite often our export takes longer to kick out than it takes to actually watch the show. Uh, so by making it a ProRes, and just, we have hard drives, just kick out a ProRes, you get to, you get two steps. One, as Alex just said, you can, you know, you can make an H.264, an H.265, you can make a WMV if you're still living in the 80s. Uh, you know, you, you can you can send it out multiple different ways. You can fiddle with the con the uh, compression algorithm or the, the data rates and get the files smaller, but you don't have to redo all the math on all of those keys and feathers and bears, oh my. Um, plus, if you're done... Now you have the final delivery file already ready to go that you don't have to go out and kick it out again. You know what it looks like because the client has already approved the H.264 that you posted for him on Frame.io or whatever. You have the file. Now I can, I'm done. So I have done that, the same workflow for 25 years. Uh, I've always done it this way ever since I started doing things full digitally. Yeah, and I... I I think I probably exported something on a Final Cut as H.264 once or twice and it crashed or did something weird. And then I was like, okay, I'm never doing that again. And it, there's nothing worse than it getting halfway through the render and something goes sour. Um, and I will say if you're on a Mac, you should use compressor to do the compression. It is, it's optimized Super for the fast. Mac and it takes so, it takes, it just eats up the entire piece of hardware to, to export something out. The one exception to Lalek that I do is if I get a bunch of footage in that I have to window dub a bunch of stuff, Sometimes I'll window dub straight to a really tiny file with, you know, for the Can burn. Can you define window dub? Uh, sure. Uh, window dub, burned in time code so that a oh, yeah. producer can sit there and look at it and go, oh, let's go to 17 minutes, 32 seconds, and 12 frames. Uh, and then, and the main reason for that is it's going to be big files. It's Alex's famous thing, end of the day, you know, let the machine do its thing. And I'll do it at the end of the day. Because then that way they're done. They're done when I come back after dinner or the next morning or whatever. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Talalik, you're getting good advice here. It's a general workflow thing, too, that when you're mastering anything uh, to do it in a mezzanine format, I do it with audio. Even if I'm uh, recording an audio, I'm not going to export it or save it as an MP3 file because if I need to go back to it, i got to uncompress it, then recompress it. Same thing applies to videos. So it's always best to have it in a format that's uh, not very lossy. Next question. 
James Babbitt from San Diego has a question that uh, we asked earlier, and because Alex is back, we'd like to ask it again. Uh, it's a great interview yesterday on Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and Ian McCaig. Uh, Ian's videos seem to focus and defocus. Is there a way to fix this with software in post? Nope. <laughs> it's a, you know, we, we uh, uh, I mean, someday there might be. We make a conscious decision with Gray Matter that it is a radio show that if you come to the live event, you get the benefit of. So if you're a member and you get access to the, you know, if you're, you, you get the benefit of watching it, the video. <laughs> so you can add the, the two things you get as a member of Gray Matter is that number one is you get to watch the video of the, of the interview, which is a pretty simple setup for us. And then you also get to ask questions live, you know, while we're, while we're having that conversation. And, um, and so, but until we have the revenue to send out kits with cameras, we've decided not to depend on um, the the far end to have a good camera. That's the, really the problem, is that um, people don't still don't have good cameras at home. <laughs> and so and so Ian, I think, was coming in from he had a good mic. He had the same mic that we use. But he was coming in from his, I think, his webcam that's on his computer. And, I, you know, it's, you know, I think that it was doing the best it could. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, another in general remark for me is that uh, I've gotten footage before from clients that are uh, soft and they want me to sharpen it. And you, there are sharpened uh, plugins out there that you can apply, but they never, ever really undo it completely. In, in fact, the artifacts end up causing more trouble than the soft focus in the first place. Yeah, and and so I um, and by the way, if if you miss the Ian's interview, it'll be out next week, uh, and then we're going to get a chance to interview him in only a couple. Uh, I think the sixteenth, ten sixteen. So Josh is probably writing that down really quickly because I had put Ian on for ten sixteen, then taking him off, and then put him back on again just now, just this morning because Ian pinged me and said, "When, when are we doing that?" So anyway, so uh, so Ian will be on on ten sixteen. Uh, you you'll want to be there. It's, it's, he's great. Um, next question. Ronnie Hofsev here from Tromso, Norway, asking the question, remote desktop in an Apple world, Apple's own jump desktop or anything else, not using TeamViewer, Parsec is now a part of Unity, and Teradici is now HP, both good ones. Can we discuss the differences? Wow, they're all good. I mean, as far as the uh, remote desktop, I used to still use Apple Remote Desktop as the base, um, but we usually put any desk on the computer to get in if we can't, if Apple, if so, if something doesn't show up immediately, we want to have something that we can just type in this number and, and we'll get in. And then we turn on, we make sure that it's set up for Apple Remote Desktop, usually across a VPN. Um, the Apple Remote Desktop gives us a lot more control over the, over the, um, the computer and it's a little it's a little tighter connection but it, it's not as reliable when you're in a WAN so um so that's the you know for for us that's what we use and we've gone through all a lot team viewers is too expensive <laughs> i haven't used jump desktop that much um and you know teradici and parsec we still view as kind of a pc solution so uh, they're very good they're very they're excellent solutions but not not something that we've typically used with the mac um next question Douglas Carmichael asking, has anyone ever laced cabling like the U.S. Bell Systems technicians used to do? Go ahead, Courtney. Used to back in the olden days, you know, back before they came up with spiral wrap, uh, the spiral wrap uh, lacing stuff or the expandable uh, nylon stuff. Uh, uh, before they came up with that kind of stuff, we used to lace, which you'd buy this uh 50 pound test lace uh, from DigiKey. You can still buy it 1,500 feet 
but it's about 40 bucks a roll. And uh, you'd, I think it probably shows us in the video, you'd loop it around, run it down, loop it around through itself, run it down, gather up all the cables. And it's kind of like a little sewing procedure. Uh, so if you're good at knitting, you know, you'd probably be good at lacing. The old school lacing, it's what they used to do. Uh, there, there is uh, Chris Fenwick is showing the, uh, the technique. Is that actually Chris lacing that, lacing that cable? Yes, Chris is behind his console Clearly, right it's now, not me lacing if you saw the up back his of my console. desk. <laughs> but it's kind of tedious, and I think the the spiral wound plastic where you can bring a cable out at any point along the line is a little bit easier to use these days than the lacing. Uh, but the lacing was really cheap, and and you could throw that roll of uh, lace into your uh, into your your toolkit and uh, be ready to lace up an entire facility. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, I'm sorry to admit that I have used that before. And what's unique about it, particularly what Chris was showing, is that the nylon or fiber material was sort of a waxy material so that when you tied it and held it, it actually would stick there so you could go to the next loop and do it over and over again until you get lost your mind. But um, also I had a lot of practice at uh, boys camp uh, making those little lanyards, so that helped me. Next question. Kind of like dental floss on steroids, you know. <laughs> Exactly. Guy Cochran from Seattle is here. Uh, his question is, HDR color really pops on the YouTube feed today. Can you explain the signal chain? Yeah, if you're watching this on a, if you're watching this with an HDR monitor, you'll see us probably pop a lot more, sometimes in better, sometimes for worse. We're still working on that. Um, but the, uh, but what we're testing right now every Saturday, and then you'll see us test it all of the week of Thanksgiving and the week of Christmas, is uh, we are moving to 4K HDR um, 5.1. And so there's, you know, baby steps, you know, it's not all working yet, but, but we've decided on Saturdays, we'll work on it. We'll do it a whole week during Thanksgiving and we'll do it a whole week during Christmas. Our goal is to be able to switch over completely, um, by, um, by the first of, of the year. So, so when we get to 2024, we enter it at that resolution and, uh, with that color, we're still having some little glitches here and there that we're working through, but, uh, but I think that we're, um, getting closer to making that work. We've been, this has been a project for us for, about two years, <laughs> so so it's not it, it it was a it started with us doing some HDR you know kicking I can't believe it's been two years but I I realize it really has been um, we started uh, banging on you know um, some HDR stuff seeing what was possible and in that time you know YouTube has has made the HDR possible made the five dot one possible um, and so you'll see we haven't really experimented with the five dot one right now it's mostly the HDR but we um, will continue to play with it. So, so um, let us, you know, definitely give us feedback on it. Maybe we, we probably should put together some channel and <laughs> yeah, another channel, but uh, you probably put it in, we'll, we'll find a channel for it there um, to talk about what you see and what you don't see. But I think uh, it's going to be pretty interesting it, with some of the SRT stuff that we're talking about. So when we get this working, the next step will be to figure out this kind of dual pipeline. Um, and I think that's probably, I, we'll have to... <laughs> We'll have to figure out whether we call it 3.0 or not. But the dual pipeline where we're all talking in WebRTC like this, but we're delivering back to the edit bay, SRT, you know, each one of us. And um, for the people who have that pipeline built into their system, and in that case, we could send 4K 10-bit back to the, if we had enough bandwidth and we have the tools to do it for the panelists. And then, um, then it'll look really nice. <laughs> like better than considerably better than broadcast <laughs> so so uh then uh, that's been kind of our our slow goal and and what's interesting about it is it's not just 
Um, it, it, that'll take a bunch of upgrades that'll take all of next year um, because, you know, we now need 4K cameras and we need or 4K outputs from our cameras and 10-bit and log and, you know, all kinds of other things to make that work. But the goal is that, you know, by doing it every single day, um, things that, be, that we would think of were hard become really boring, which, you know, and as they get boring, you know, more of us can use them in other places. <laughs> so, you know, oh, right, that's the, these are the things we have to worry about. So anyway, so we're working on it. Um, if you've got a, it also, if you have an iPad or an iPhone um, and you look at the show, you'll see it pop there too. Um, so if HDR TV, now the only way you'll hear the 5.1, which you're not going to hear anything today, but when you start really moving towards the 5.1, you'll only hear it if you have a TV system with a surround sound. If you have a, um, a phone or a, you, a phone or a uh, iPad, you can see, or in any device that shows HDR, you should be able to see um, our, us in HDR. Now we're hopefully looking okay in SDR as well. There's a little bit, that's part of what we're trying to figure out is how to look good at both. Um, cause we know that a lot of people will not watch it in HDR. Um, so we're, we're, but we're, um, slowly, slowly creeping towards that. And if you have questions about that, Saturday's a great day to ask that um, any of the technical stuff. What's, what's happening is, is that to go back to the original question from Guy, is that, you know, we're going into Zoom, Zoom ISO, we're separated out of Zoom ISO. All of these signals go into FSHDRs. So we have um, an, an, a channel in F, the FSHDRs for every single person. So we can actually um, uh, shade every, every person individually, which um, I was going to do today. I'm going to try to do a little bit before the end of the show. I uh, got a little, had a little problem this morning before the show, so I didn't, I wasn't able to get, uh, get set up for it. So, um, but we will, um, but we will, you'll see us start to shade everybody. So like, for instance, John and Courtney are maybe a little overexposed. Uh, Mitchell's probably about right. Uh, Chris and, and Jesse are a little, possibly a little underexposed. We'll, we'll take a look uh, in their foreground. And so we'll kind of play with, like, Jesse's got great stuff in the background. Um, um, but so we'll play with, and we'll, you'll see us kind of playing with those, those dials on our end um, a little bit. And again, um, if you've got suggestions, go ahead and, and send them in to us. So we're, um, it's going to be a, a process over the next three months, you know, as we work through it. But we're really excited about it. And I think that, um, you know, the goal is, again, when we think about also how do we build virtual events and are they viable, having a show that comes up every day that, let's say, by next NAB looks dramatically better than uh, any, uh, any show on TV that's all being done online, I think it's a useful thing to kind of set a stake in the ground, you know, in that, in that, in that area. And, uh, it's, you know, have people not be able to use that it's online as an excuse for it not to be great. All right, next question. I've got a question. Uh, have you had a chance to try out some of the new Sonoma features? Go ahead, John. Yes, I've played with the number one feature of Sonoma, the wall, the moving wallpapers. <laughs> that seems to be what everybody's excited I've about. I've played with at least six or seven of them, and I'm trying to figure out which one I like the best. <laughs> Go ahead, oh, Mitchell. and the fireworks only work with Apple Silicon. Uh, okay, there we go. Go ahead, Mitchell. That was mine, John. But wait for it. Here's what happens when you do this. You get the, the uh, snowing uh, picture stuff, and you've got this, and you've got balloons and fireworks, and oh, dear, oh, my. So there's something to annoy the back end with just a little bit. <laughs> go ahead, Chris. The real game, Mitchell, is I believe that there are eight different gestures, and can you figure them all out? Yeah. The, uh, now, and, and Mitchell, you, you made your Apple camera, the web camera for Zoom. Is that how that works? 
No, um, no, no it to. goes Any basically through my ATAN as it did before. It's 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 almost exactly the way it was before, except so it, it killed, just shows uh, up as the ATAM camera. But if you do the yes. gestures, it just does it. It just does it. It just I don't know how it gets it in there, but it does it, it to the make uh, any sense, UVB, Alex. UVC. Any camera on the system, it's weird. But I think that we should institute a uh, like a swear jar. So anybody who accidentally has that pop up on the show, they have to put twenty bucks into a Venmo account. <laughs> Wait, we what all, did you just do to get the balloons? There's eight different gestures. You have to figure them okay. all out. In some countries, and they're transparent just, too. And in it's some, crazy. So here's a problem with all of this. In some countries, what Mitchell just did is a, is a swear word, and it, and and then they gave us balloons. Like, I don't yay, know we're cursing. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. I've just begun making. We need a swear jar. We need a swear jar, and if you actually do it, you get charged, and then we give that money to some sort of charity. There you go. Uh, next question. Next question from Zach Stallsmith of Chautauqua, New York. I'm experimenting with some new hardware in my live stream setup. Can I use a hard fader on a MIDI controller, such as the X-Touch, to manually control the speed of the transition bar in vMix? My end goal is to have a manual control to have an overlay. Yeah, I don't know if you could do it with X. You might be able to do it with X Touch. I'm not. I don't know for sure about X Touch. I mean, there are many MIDI controllers. There's. Um, I mean, anything that has a MIDI controller is um, able to um, take that information and then pass it back in. So, um, yeah, I think that the 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 in our uh, the chat, a lot of people are talking about central control. So central control could take that information and then convert it into a format that would be possible to to use that with. You just have to have it, generally with most of these pieces of hardware. You got to figure out what protocol they're in. It's just a matter of converting that protocol to something else. Um, and if you're talking about an ATEM, you're, the best way to control the ATEM is the Mix Effect Pro. Next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Found any short 90 degree USB C cords for external SSD drives on a 15 Pro Max? Uh, Courtney? Uh, yeah, I've found some. I don't have the 15 Pro Max, but I get these on from uh, Amazon. I've used them on my non-Apple phones. They work quite well. They're right-angle USB-C. They're full charging. It says here, right here, works with iPhone 15, 15 Pro, and 15 Pro Plus. And they're one-footers. It's about the shortest ones I could find. Uh, they may make a six-incher or something, but these were one-foot. Three of them for 12 bucks. Such a deal. Jesse? And I'm assuming that you're talking about USB-C, not USB-3. Um, also, Condor Blue makes a 5-inch USB-C. Only one of them is at night. Only one end is at 90 degrees, and the other is straight on. Those guys at Condor Blue, they think of everything. Uh, next question. From Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Speaking of collaboration tools, RIP Google Jamboard, hardware software whiteboard. I like the web and mobile versions, and everyone has a Google account. Do you use online whiteboards? So here's the problem with the, the giant surface that Microsoft did or does in Google's Jamboard is that they, they, uh, we're put, bringing back something that is not future-driven. <laughs> so, so they were like, people want to be comfortable, so we're going to give them a board that they're that they're comfortable with. But when you draw on the board, you know, you're it it it, it created this thing. Like, I can get all the resolution I need to talk to you about something with this, right? So, I'm drawing on a board that's in front of me. I don't need 
a big board to turn to or a giant board to work on, you know, this is this is enough resolution. In fact, usually if I make it, if I go to one, I want to make it thinner. And it's like, it gets to a point where it's just hard for you to see on your end. And so the, the reality is, is that you just don't need, you didn't need a big board and neither does the surface need to be a big board. It's cool. And old people that, you know, are old executives that have done a lot of this stuff with whiteboards, you know, I don't mean old people, but it's old thinking, um, will go, oh, that's cool. Like, that's what I'm used to. But it is not, it's, it's just the past, you know? And so it was never going to work. <laughs> like, like it was never going to like, and so I, and I think that I, I think I said that when it came out, like, that's never going to work, <laughs> like, you know? And, and so small pads, also the, the little glass thing that people put in front, like it locks you down so much. You got to look at how it's locking down your cameras, locking down what you're able to do. Um, so things like video pencil that that Michael Forrest works on or the little thing that, that I'm working on with Juan or other things like that, that's far more effective than than any kind of weird whiteboard, smart board, all those things. That's for people who aren't willing to give up the past to move to the future. So So yeah, so Google finally gave up because no one cared about it because it doesn't work. Next question. From Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, what will the web camera requirements for panelists when office hours goes to 4K? It'll still be, I mean, we'll be able to scale up 2K. It's just people who want to slowly move to that, they can. I mean, it's not going to be something that everybody has to do. Um, you know, so so I think that, that it, it's just, they'll be, you know, like they'll just be 4K if people want to use it. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. You'll hear a lot of this. Oh, you're still using that 1080 feed. Hmm. I think that the average person will not be able to tell the difference between between the, the 1080s scaled up to 4K and the 4K. But but we. Will. I mean, I guess if you want to use that camera, I guess that's okay. There's going to be a lot of Alex Lindsay guilt and shame. That's not coming until 2026. Like like you know, there's a solid two more. <laughs> that years. happens on a daily with you. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> Next question. Next one in from Bill Mew in Tunbridge, Wells, UK. Yesterday, I asked about the Magewell director, Mini. It was dismissed for having just 2X HDMI. It also has 2X USB and multiple SRT and HDI in and out. Plus, it's small enough for a roving team to use and feed back to a studio via SRT. Many more use cases. Go, Jesse. Bill, I, I apologize. I am old. Uh, my bones have calcified. I really want HDMI in straight across the board. I'm, I'm sure that this thing is, is better than I labeled it uh, on the previous episode. And, and thank you for calling me out. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it could be interesting. I, I think the bottom line is we have to test it. And it's just a matter of one of us getting one to test it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I really like the fact that it has a USB-C input for a webcam so that we could use the Insta360 link into one and still have some HDI, HDMI inputs to use to switch between. So it's very handy for that kind of stuff. And I don't know if those two USB inputs are both inputs or one is an output that's used to be a webcam out into another computer or not. And what's the cost on it? What is it? What are they charging for it? I can't remember. I think it's about uh, 600 bucks or something, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, it is, I mean, uh, and I will say that Magewell has um, come a long way uh, in there in, in doing these things. I'm just trying, oh, it's, oh, it's $1,200 or I think, yeah, $1,200, $1,300. So it's 
it's it's up there. Um, yeah, I, I'd be interested to see someone use it. And, and I think that that's the bottom line is that we just need to see someone using it and figure out what the practical use case is. Uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, how are we getting to 4K when Zoom won't pass 4K natively? It's a great question. Um, so when we... Of, oh, how we're doing 4K now is we're all getting scaled up. <laughs> that's how that happens. So we're all being scaled up to 4K. So if you see us now and we look really sharp, that's as good as 1080p that's getting scaled up. The future somewhere in 2020, late 2024, 2025 is going to be some of us will have SRT and SRT can deliver that to the system separately as 4K. And so we would be, and we would need to have a 4K subsystem. It changes a lot of things for us. So we're not trying to say that we're going to do that anytime soon. It could be another year, year and a half before we get there, but we'll start to play with it. The first thing will be is just to get not 4K so much as as a um, uh, the, a 10-bit solution with SRT back to the studio. So that'll be the first thing. So we won't have to change the resolution. Right now, uh, it's being scaled, um, I believe, in the FS HDR, the R, you know, is where we're scaling. Uh, no, no, no. It's being scaled before it goes. It's being scaled by the ATEM because the ATEM is the ATEM is running 4K. So the graphics that you see are 4K. The only thing that's 1080p is the signals from the participants. Um, the big advantage of that is that even if we don't change what we're doing here anytime soon, if we start playing videos back for you or we take a 4K input from, let's say, a live view or, or something local, all of that's going to be in 4K HDR. And it means that we um, will look reasonably good at 4K HDR, but the source footage that's coming in will look amazing at, H, at, at 4K HDR. So that's the, you know, that's what we're kind of, um, uh, that's the thing that, that really, it's, it's us keeping up with a 4K source that may be coming in from either a live view or a remote location or, the, you know, something in a studio. So those are the things that are, that are possible there. So it, it has less to do with us in the, in the short term and more to do with the other things that we could put, pump into this. Next question. Talalak Lopez Waterman in Phoenix, Arizona, asking, excellent answers on my Resolve question. Thank you. Can I export transparency in ProRes from Resolve? Jesse? Uh, yes, you can. And we're going to jump over to Resolve to do exactly that. So we're in the Deliver tab. And what you want to do is go from Apple ProRes 422 to something like 4444 or 4444XQ. And you'll see that the Export Alpha option is uh, comes up and you can tick that box and there you go you got alpha yeah and if you have one of the a good example for this if you want to do lower thirds or you want to build something into something like resolve um you could um you can export that out you can uh, load that into a um, one of the hyperdeck minis and those will do key fill they have two two outputs from them um you obviously there's a lot of software that can do that as well but you could get it all all the way into hardware if you wanted to go ahead mitchell yeah, in the old days, we used to use uh, the animation codec to do that, and I'm wondering if that works in Resolve also. Uh, I don't think anybody uses the animation codec anymore. <laughs> Maybe it's still, you still use it? Oh, okay. Sorry. I do sometimes, just for old times' sake. So cute. Uh, I have no idea. I, don't, I, didn't, I, <laughs> I didn't even know it was still there. Now I, in, in, in all fairness, I, I, used, it, I used it for, um, uh, for everything for years. So, yeah. Uh, next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, can I connect my Link 360 to my 15 Pro, I guess it means Pro Max 15, and MultiView or switch cameras? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think you can do that. Um, I don't, the, 
Well, not yet. The Link 360 seems to be pretty quirky, to be honest, when it comes to connecting to, to computers. And so it likes to just have a normal connection to the computer and you do anything funky. It, I think that hopefully they'll think about that because I think to your point, that'd be a great solution. That would work really well. So hopefully they'll think about that or consider it. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida, asking Alex, I recently noticed you're in the clickety mechanical keyboard camp. Which one? And does it have a Mac layout? Uh, it does have a Mac layout, and this is a DOS keyboard. Uh, I don't have any good... W it's so wired into my desk, I can't pick it up even to show it to you. But it's... Um, I like... <laughs> I like little things like the fact that it's got a little volume knob on one side that just is very, uh, you think that it doesn't matter and it seems silly, but it's it's really great to just turn things up and down there. Um, and it has uh, some little play and record and jump things, but it just, I, it, you have movement, you know, when I'm typing and I, I like the... I like the movement of it. I don't like how much noise it makes, to be honest, but it does make you feel like you're working harder. Um, and so, you know, like you feel like you're being more effective and you're getting more things done because you can hear the... And, and it also, I, I found that at first I thought it was going to annoy um, the clients when I'm taking notes while I'm talking to them, but they actually, it makes them feel like you're working, <laughs> like you're listening to, like they'll say something and they hear click, 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 and they realize that I'm writing down what they just said. And, and they, I think that they actually like that. Anyway, um, a quick reminder that tomorrow is uh, the uh, uh, introspection day. If you've got comments, questions, concerns, more questions about what we do here at Office Hours or more philosophical questions. Sometimes we'll jump over them a little bit here in Office Hours during the week, but on the weekends, on, on Sunday especially, uh, we, we're willing to usually chew on something for 10 or 15 minutes. So if you've got those, come tomorrow and, uh, and ask those questions. We'll just jump into the second hour. Gotta do that right on the time. Instead of when I say it. Um, next question. Next question for Douglas Carmichael. Dish Network has a channel for a livestock auction company in rural Texas. Considering most high bandwidth circuits, Metro, Ethernet at all, are in urban areas, how would you get the program feed to Dish? And how would they find crew in a rural market? Courtney? Well, it depends on how much money there is in it. They can roll a mobile satellite truck and go and shoot a... Q-band satellite up to the, one of the transponders that DISH has on their satellites, and they could bring it in that way, or they could bring it in on an optical backhaul, or they could use Starlink and go into, you know, all of the head-ins for DISH Network or DirecTV have very strong fiber connections to them, high-speed fiber connections to them, so that you could hit any... Uh, um, Sir, any, any internet uh, server and find their way to their head end that way and carry it that way. But a lot of times they use uh, satellite uplinks if there's enough money into it. They'll roll a truck and put it out in the middle of a cow field if necessary and uh, send your information up and they get crew. You know, you'd be surprised at the number of technical savvy their people are on rural ranches out there. They're using satellite feeds to uh, guide their combines to uh, cut their crops and they're using drones to monitor livestock. They're a little more sophisticated than you might think. Dish Channel 9612, it looks like, is the, is the one where you can see some auctions. That'd be so much fun. I had no idea. I had no idea that they had, they had uh, auctions on, on Dish Network. They need to put that on YouTube TV. That's all I got to say. That, that, that's got to be something that we have more access to. We've got, we've got uh, the NFL, now the NFL Sunday ticket. I think we need the, the auctioneer ticket um, to go with that. But yeah, we've streamed from all over the world. You'd be 
as as Courtney said, you can find people that can do shoot video all over the world. Um, and b bandwidth now has become a lot easier. Um, in more rural areas where we really don't have the bandwidth, a lot of times we find somewhere that has bandwidth and we um, we can fire a uh, uh, microwave to it, you know, and, and get get relatively, I mean, very stable. We've, I've run whole pretty pretty large events on microwave. <laughs> so so the uh, so I think that that's um, it's totally possible. Next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia, asking, please share the use of the iPad app Orion HDMI again, please. You know, I just downloaded that on my iPad, but I haven't got all the things set up where I have a, a, a viable HDMI output for it yet. So I, because the way my system is set up, there's no, I use one for my, for, for my uh, teleprompter and then the other one's a multi-view. So I don't have that, um, I don't have that set up, so give us another couple of days. But we'll, I'm trying to figure out a way to set it up so that we can see it because it looks it looks pretty useful. I also got the video assist, so I'm hoping to compare and contrast that relatively soon. Next question. And it's from Eric Price in Kansas City, uh, Missouri. Options for a camera to support a middle school auditorium. Required, good with both stage light and low light. Tight shots from the back of the room, 100 feet. XLR in, HDMI out, HD picture. School budget requires below 2 to 2.5K. Jesse? Oh, you were describing the Blackmagic 6K Studio with the Canon EF 70-200 to lens until you got to the price, and then it became... I would look more towards a, a camcorder, and around $2,000, you can absolutely get a very high-quality camcorder that records in 4K with XLR in and HDMI out. Mitchell? Yeah, you hit one of the Sony sweet spots at the FX30, and it does have XLR on the handle. Yeah, but the, uh, how much is it though? The FX30 is, it, I think it, he needs it with the lens at twenty five hundred dollars. The uh, FX30 a, is going to be a little pushing three thousand. Right. So, I do think that you're probably in a camcorder world, you know, for that. I mean, there's potentially you could get the Blackmagic Cinema 4K would give you. You could put a big lens on the end of that one. I mean, that, that, that would get you really close to that price. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I'd say, you know, these, like a JVC uh, GY HM180, something like this. It has a camcorder, it's 4K camcorder. It has a decent lens with a pretty good zoom on it and uh, XLR inputs. So that, that'd probably do the trick for you. But the, the other thing is get a good tripod, a good fluid head on a tripod. That might run you up over your 2.5,000, even though the camera's only... Uh, Actually, I think that deal came with a tripod, but I wouldn't trust it. Uh, get a good fluid tripod, uh, fluid head tripod, because if you're going to be on a long end of that lens following people around the stage, you're going to need a good tripod. Yeah, and this one's just a touch more, which is the um, uh, the Sony. Uh, it would be $2,800, but it would be this, this brand new. You might be able to find some deals. The Sony XD Cam PXW Z90B. And um, we've had ones that are similar to this, and they've got some. They, they have a 4K, which means I think that they also have a way to punch in um, for this as well. Uh, it is. Uh, I I will tell you that I'm not a big fan of JVC's chips. <laughs> so so like I I think that they, uh, um, you know, that's that's the only concern that I that I would have there. Um, I've just never found them to be. I, I find that JVC is very aggressive about doing lots of cool things. They just the base quality of the chips has not been great at the lower end. They have a lot of good broadcast cameras. Go ahead, Jesse. 
Um, and I don't know who's going to be operating. If you're going to end up being the one who's operating it, I, I would consider uh, augmenting that budget and uh, use it as a donation to the school because I'd rather be on the equipment that I want to use, whatever it costs. Just a thought. Next question. Next one is, for me, how do I turn off the new Sonoma camera gestures? They're driving me crazy. I don't know how to turn them off. How do you, they've got to be in there. There's got to be a demo there. Um, I do not know how to turn them off. But it's kind I've of never, amazing and weird that, that it just attaches. Like, you're not creating a separate camera. It just, it just attaches to the, uh, to the thing. And, the, again, that gesture specifically is weird. I, I am it's very that they, that that's okay. Oh yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, I am very um, uh, demonstrative with my hands during the show, and now I'm afraid to do anything because I'm going to discover something new. And the other quick, and I'll just the reason I put the question in is because I've never ever gotten this many Discord messages or comments on the event chat from uh, office hours about people doing everything uh, that I should do, including uh, putting money in a jar every time I uh, make a gesture. So now I have to sit here and not make any gestures until I figure out how to turn this thing off. Next question. Next question, Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. I'm curious if anyone has seen this little GLINet router with dual 5G failover. Wondering if I could be a poor man's pep wave. John? Uh, Mr. Gibson, I would hit up Keenan since he's in this business with his router, and he's tested a lot of these third-party uh, solutions, and he's got a good understanding of of several that are out there that, I, that I've come across and I've bounced it off him that, that he's tested in his career. So hit him up in uh, Discord. I know that uh, a, a lot of people that I know have been using different versions of these GLI nets. Um, so these these are definitely, it's a, you know, these are a lot of little routers that, um, that people have been throwing in their backpacks. I know a lot of friends that have different versions of these. I don't know exactly which ones um, that have been really successful. So I, I think that if it looks like it might work, it might be at least worth testing. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. When you're editing a remote audio interview, what do you do with those little one-word internet glitches? Any preferred tools like Descript's regenerate feature? Their instant overdub. I don't know. I have I have a feeling that a lot of these things will get figured out not in the not too distant future. Yeah, that's the biggest problem. It's the thing we try to do is get people to not use Wi-Fi. <laughs> like, and if you're wondering where most of those come from, it's because someone couldn't get an Ethernet cable to where they needed to get to, and um, and so you see like little little bumps um, that are there, and it's usually you know you'll lose maybe ten words an hour <laughs> that are that are that that's of uh, some little glitch there, and I I know that's what he's talking about, but it's. It's hard to fix, although it'd be interesting to see if Descript could fix that word and you could put it back in. I don't know if it would really sound right. It might sound worse than just having it lost. A lot of people are pretty, the one thing we have learned is a lot of people are pretty understanding because they actually see it all day, every day in their Zoom meetings because no one uses wired connections. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I mean, if you're dealing with it in post-production, it's not a live uh, situation. You know, you can find that word that glitched somewhere else and clip it out and paste it in. Or better yet, just do double-end recording of all your interviews. So, you know, have them send you the local recording and you can find that spot and lay it in or lay in the whole clean dialogue if you want to edit the whole yes. thing together. It's just hard to, on a normal basis to get double-end Obviously, Zoom promised still hasn't delivered double-end recording, um, you know, and so I think that it's, uh, 
but yeah, if you can get something that's relatively Squadcast is another one that will do a double end record for you. Um, and we're actually thinking about moving to Squadcast for Michael Krasny um, specifically because of the fact that we could get a double end on it. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree on the double end, and I can't tell you how many countless hours I've spent trying to find the word that should have been in there somewhere else in the uh, script, and then hoping that their intonation is exactly right to match the sentence. So you always have about a 20% chance of that working. Next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. I'm updating to Sonoma on all my computers, with the exception of the Mimo Live computer, which is, uh, is that a good idea? I would reach out to Oliver. Um, you know, I think that that, I, I'm, I, I don't know, usually you want to give um, more complex systems like Memo little time to get to get themselves set up, but I'm sure he's had the beta for a while. Um, but I would reach out, definitely reach out to Memo um, to, or to Boinks and, uh, and see if, uh, see what they say about that process. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael wants to know, would there be a Mac OS utility that can hide and show desktop finder icons quickly? Finder icons. I don't know why I would do that. So I'm, I'm not sure what the question is, mostly because I just don't know what the use is. Um, I don't really look for much on my computer. I mostly just search. <laughs> like I just search, well, like, where is this, where is this, where is this? Um, sometimes I find it on my desktop, but I don't have a lot on my desktop. Uh, next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia. Is there more value in the updated iMovie on Sonoma? I don't think any of the video products had any major upgrades. Um, the, they had some minor, you know, tweaking, uh, fixing support for the, the biggest thing we saw and the biggest reason you probably want to update iMovie would be um, the, uh, it's probably updated to support the iPhone 15. So if you've got an iPhone 15, you should update all the video products inside of Apple because it's going to take care of the color and all the other things that the iPhone 15 is doing uh, more effectively. And this will become more important when um, the spatial video starts to roll out for the iPhone 15 because the, most likely the, um, the so Apple software products will be the first ones to support that. Next question. Next one in from John Foltson, Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. With a USB port on the iPhone 15, could we possibly use the new Shure XLR to USB device to bring audio into the phone? Mitchell? I believe that's the MV something 2 uh, from Shure, and it's a USB 2 compliant, so yeah, it should work. I mean, everything points to yes. Yeah, I think the only question would be is, does it deliver power? You know, like, does it deliver power to the, you know, if, if you need a 48, if you're doing something with a, uh, with a dynamic mic, I don't, I think it could work. I'm just, I'm, uh, <laughs> see, I'm just trying to figure out what, what app would do that. So this is, this is that, this is the, that sure that I was talking about. This is the, on the end of a, it's kind of cute, um, in the sense that it is, it's on the end of this, uh, DPA. Um, and so this is the little, the piece that he's talking about here. I pull it out. So this is the, that's the, and you've got the USB-C and a headphone jack for low latency. Um, it's probably, we'll see if we can test this. We got a little time because we're going to end short right now. If you're wondering, so we've got a moment here. So we'll do like a mini lab as we try to figure this out real quickly. So I've got my iPhone 15 and we'll, oh, here's one problem. All the cases for the iPhone 15 we found 
They don't support the USB-C plugs. <laughs> don't go all the way in. Do they? they don't go all the way in. <laughs> so, um, all right. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's no, it's no, shy, uh, no shade on any case because they're, they're all the same. They all have the same problem. Um, let's see here. Uh, oh, are you connecting a pair of headphones? Uh, let's see here. Well, you could because it identifies as a headphone out because it has headphone outs on it. Yeah, hold on. Let's see here. It asked me. It de it definitely saw it. Oh, and I get. I'm getting a, a power light. It's it's doing 48 volt. Hold on. Let's see here. Um, I'm trying to figure out what I can use to to test it. Well, do you have just a recorder, just a memo recorder? It's you, the funny thing about me is that I I don't I don't move all my apps from one phone to another. So when I have a new phone, it doesn't have anything until I need it. So hold on, let me. Uh... Hold well, on, you could see. FaceTime to one of your other friends that has Apple fifties on. <laughs> yeah, hold on, let's see here. Yeah, the power is an issue, and the other question, okay, you on, obviously okay. couldn't use it. It says same power, and, and it's, let's see, here, hold on. Yeah, it does supply 48 volts. Uh, that to yep. sure does. So, so what I will say is that it is, hold on. Yep, it's working. Interesting. We'll have to test that more. So it works, um, and the reason I know is because I, I just, I hooked up the DPA, I plugged this into the phone, and then I scratched it. So it didn't make any noise other than scratching the end of the end of the thing, and, and it showed showed signals. So uh, it 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 worked with this DPA. That is super interesting. Um, that is a great question, John, because <laughs> that was I didn't think about that. But you know, I think what's going to be interesting to see. I do think that somebody we've talked about this needing to happen for a long time. But there's really the opportunity now with this camera to build a rig that is like lets you put XLR in the side and lets you gives it power, has a drive, has all those other things in it to really build out stuff. It's it's a really interesting opportunity. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. I love the idea that that uh, Sure device itself uh, can fix a lot of problems. I mean, I, that's got to be in your bag for going on remotes oh, sorry, because that's why it means I got it. everything will work through that. Yeah, no, that's why I got it. Absolutely. Next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia. Setup has been redone. Is there a chance that I can get a ruthless review of my setup and not have to wait until next month and after hours? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the, we, you know we're, uh, we've got a little extra time today, Tony. So if you go through the thing, our guys in the back end are yelling at me right now. But if you come in, we'll just do it right now. But otherwise, you, we can, uh, you, could, you could come in, uh, Tony, next tomorrow. Just come in before the show and we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at it. Uh, just... Um, you know how to get there. Next question. Greg Gibson from Washington, D.C. Alex, why the switch from the Sony uh, Z1E10 camera over your FX30, and what lens combo are you using with it? Yeah, so what I was trying to find is a less expensive solution for, you know, something that was a little, you know, we're trying to design kits around things, and I find the easiest way to, to design the kit is to use it. And so I am 
so I have the EV10 or the EVZ10 and I'm using the 35 millimeter and it's the one step down. It's like the 1.8 instead of the 1.4. The difference in cost between them is maybe a couple thousand dollars. So, so it's like $2,000 difference between the kit. And so when I think about building a kit system, I wanted to know like, what is the possibility? And I like the fact that it's small and I feel like a little bit, it's a little closer to the webcam cost <laughs> for me um, than, than what we were using. And I, before this, I was using the, the, as the FX30 and before that, the Blackmagic 6K. The, the, the autofocus, I, I really think is important for this usage. I think that autofocus is not that important for a lot of other usages. Um, so the, uh, if you're doing a film, no one ever asks if an Airy has autofocus or a Venice has autofocus, you're, you know, and so a cinema camera doesn't really need autofocus um, in that sense because uh, you're always going to be having a, some kind of focus control on it, whether it's a follow focus or just the lens or whatever you're doing. So it's not important for that, but it is for web video, you know, fast stuff, live stuff, um, this kind of thing where I can lean in, lean out, I can go like this and it, well, if it doesn't see my eyes, it'll focus. So... Uh, I wanted to find a less expensive way to do that. Um, and so that's why I, I kind of I wanted to see what it was like so that if I buy other ones or would buy a kits, kit, kit show, like how hard is it to run? The downside of it is, is that the color control on the EV is much less. There's a lot. So the, for the most part, um, you get the, the autofocus is a little slower, but on the most part, it looks pretty much the same as the FX30, but same size chip. Um, the I did get the little adapter that Mitch suggested, which is like a micro HDMI to regular HDMI that locks on. I have a small rig um, cage, and then on the side of that small rig cage, you can see Mitch, Mitch is showing that right now. Um, is the um, but that that little adapter there means that someone could cut to Mitch there for a second, so you can see that because I can't show it. So that little adapter takes the pressure off of the you know, so I can take I can plug it, unplug it without having to worry about it. So that, so I did do that. Um, and uh, the power supply to the EV is better than the FX30. So the, the, you, have to, you have to use this battery thing because Sony is super weird. Like everybody does something weird. And the whole thing that I can't just plug into the USB-C on the side without a battery and have it work for Sony is weird. Like it's just weird, you know, and it's like, and, and so the advantage of the FX, the EV is it's got even like a little, it's got like a little door that you can run the cable into. But Sony should just fix that. Like, that's just a stupid thing to do. Anyway, so um, you can't ever find one camera that does all the things right. <laughs> like, you know, it'd be, it'd be amazing um, to get one camera that just did it all right. Um, uh, I, I would say, again, Blackmagic does almost everything right except for the autofocus, which I just found myself when I wanted to short my, shorten my depth of field. I was, con if, if you look back on the old shows, I'd rock back and forth trying to find my focus, you know, and or try to do re redo autofocus. It was just... It was not a great experience. So, so anyway, so for as a web camera or as a run and gun, I prefer the Sony cameras, um, but they have all these weird things to them. Um, and so anyway, so the FX30, um, I may go back to because I can't load LUTs into the EV. So the LUTs, you don't have any LUTs. Um, and so, and you have less control in general over the color in the EV than you do in the FX30. I mean, that's what you're paying for, I guess. So I'm really interested. I'm kind of holding out to buy any more cameras until I get to ch test the LR1. So the LR1 is, it's the size of a web camera and it's got, a, but it's got the A7, <laughs> a, A7S3 or A7S4, like full frame sensor. Um, no it, audio. 
has no I audio. Care, I don't care about the audio because I never use the audio in with the camera. So, so the um, so the, you know, I don't care about audio for it. Um, I uh, so that so what potentially is there, and it's got a whole API and it's got all these controls because it's designed to be a drone camera. So I actually think that it could be the perfect kit camera for what the way I work. Um, but we have to see. We'll have to get a hold of one and, and see. So um, that could because it's really small. You can put the regular lenses on everything else, and so I'm really interested in seeing that. But that'll be specifically for sending out with kits. Um, anyway, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But uh, until I think what Blackmagic should do, I think Blackmagic has the whole thing, especially now with the new cinema camera that's full frame. They got the whole the whole package ready to go. And what they what I think they should do is instead of trying to figure out autofocus, just put a lidar sensor on it. Just do the same lidar sensor that you know it's similar to what Apple does and other people do a lidar sensor. I mean the, the new uh, for, DJI 40 camera uses lidar and for autofocus. I think that's really the solution because uh, it, it it'll just give you a lot more control. Next question. Next question from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Has any of the panel uh, had a chance to use personal voice on iOS? I keep on trying to get around to it. At first I said, well, they need to give us three hours. And then I went to 11 labs and said, give us three hours. I was like, oh, that's a lot. I got to figure that out. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I have to go back and and uh, um, uh, try to, but I, I do, I am interested in, in both 11 labs and the personal voice to, to, to do that, but I haven't tested it yet. Next question. Robin Cutshaw from Atlanta, Georgia. What fiber range extenders do you use for a 100 plus foot HDMI run? Uh, I use um, links, so this is um, the yellow yellow bricks. So um, it, let me see if I can find the li uh, links. You can use a lot of things, but this these are the ones that I mean, and I, I will not say that these are the the least expensive solution. <laughs> so so the uh, um, but these are the ones that uh, let's see here. They make a lot of different. Um, Let's see. So these are the, they have lots and lots of different ones, fiber conversions, optical switches, sync generators. Uh, when, when I'm doing production, these are the ones that I have a tendency to, they have whole rack frames. We used to have this rack frame back in the day. Um, anyway, so um, the, but these are the, to me, they're the rock solid, Throwdowns that you can use. Of course, Blackmagic makes some as well, so they have they have some other ones that you can that you can use that are there. Um, uh, so a lot of them are really inexpensive, and then you have to buy the SFPs for them, <laughs> and and, and they, then they get really expensive, or or they get a lot more expensive because of the SFPs. So um, so that's the other, the other thing to look at. But but the other thing to think about is how many signals you want to send. So for instance, with those those yellow bricks, um, we would send four signals, you know, 1080p, four 3Gs because they'd be like a 12G signal over one piece of fiber out to something that needs to get there. So think about not just a individual runs out there, but think about how to get, um, you know, you know, mux, you can mux a bunch of them on top of, they'll use different wavelengths and you can put four cameras. I, I think the most we've ever put onto one piece of fiber is about eight. And the problem you get into when you have too many signals on the fiber is when the fiber takes a hard turn. So when it gets, when, it, when you're moving it around, if it takes a hard turn, some of the wavelengths sometimes don't make the turn. So, so you know, just this is the wavelengths. You have to be careful of what colors you're using there. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, the Biden administration is planning to bring back net neutrality rules. Do you think it will positively affect the internet in the U.S.? Jesse? 
I don't want to say too much because I don't want to get into all of that. But uh, the the shorthand I will use is pretty much any policy that pushes back against the will of Verizon and Comcast when it comes to internet is going to be good for the consumer. Yeah, I, I don't think it'll make any difference. <laughs> We've been talking about this for a long time. I'm just like, mm, sure, you know, like it, it doesn't, I mean, it won't make any sizable difference. Uh, I don't think that um, it's not a, it, it, it's not nearly as important as people make it out to be. But, you know, I think that, um, I mean, the problem the Biden administration has, this is just from a, uh, a technical perspective is that the, that the, the folks that are, uh, that are trying to make these rules don't have any industry experience. So they just make up a lot of stuff that doesn't have any impact. Next question. Tony Mobley in New Georgia again. Alex, when is your app going to be released for writing on video? Working on it. <laughs> I will say, so here's the problem with releasing products into the App Store, is that if you release them and they're not just right, you're going to get a bunch of one stars and people, um, you know, attacking it. Um, and it really makes it hard to dig out of that hole. So if, if I can see things that I think need to be just tweaked just a little bit, I'd rather delay it a little bit longer. It, you, you, the app, people think that the app store is just like throw it up and see how it goes. You cannot do that. <laughs> like you cannot do that on the Apple app store um, because the bad ratings will, I've talked to a lot of developers, the bad ratings are, will annihilate your sales. Um, you know, and so you have to really get, there's just a little couple little things and, and it works. I mean, I, here's the worst part is it works great for me the way I use it, but I can see little holes in places that people will go. Hmm. So, um, so we're trying to fix that right now and we might take some stuff out of it just so that we don't have to deal with it. But Juan has done an incredible job with it. And, and I love, I love my, I love the app. <laughs> so, so I do think that we'll put it out there. I just want to clean up a couple little things before we, before we release it. Go ahead, Mitchell. We will serve no app before it's time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, but we're very, very close. It's working really well right now. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael in with a question. Visual lookup in iOS 17 is smart enough to interpret those symbols for laundry care and tell you what they are. Could you see consumer products moving to QR codes instead of specific symbols in the future? You know, if, if, they're, if they're able to read the lookup, the, the visual lookup tables, then you, you probably don't need the, the QR code. <laughs> so the QR codes are good because you can put much more complex information into it. Um, but I, don't, I think that for those simple things, it might make sense, Code Courtney. Yeah, I, I don't want to have to pull out a device to read, you know, the washing instructions on my shirt. You know, I'm perfectly capable of reading English or a little symbol that says, you know, don't dry clean or, you know, cold water only. I don't know. I don't look it could at be common other. symbols for that. I don't even know what those symbols mean. Like, I'm just like, is it, if it's got nylon in it, I'm not going to iron it <laughs> or buy it. Um, yeah, go ahead. Or buy it, yes. yes I, go I'll wear it once until I sweat and well, then the I'll is, throw it away. I mean, you know, the, the, thing, the thing is, I, when I travel, anytime I don't care about wrinkles, then I wear nylon because I can... Um, uh, because I can wash it in the sink in the hotel room. So I, so all my travel clothes are all nylon or polyester or whatever, so that I can, that quick, they, they quickly uh, dry. And so I can, um, so I, I have a lot of that, but all my real clothes are all cotton. <laughs> like, you know, and, and the main thing is because it's because I can iron it. Like, I know you can, people will say you can iron nylon, but oh man. That gets ugly really fast. <laughs> like, you know, like it's, it's all sticky on top. On, it gets all sticky with your uh, iron. And, you know, and I have a thing about steam it. Relative. Steam it. 
I know, but okay. Just get a steamer. Yeah. So when you travel, you're just a ball of static electricity. That's <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, no, it's yeah, it's it's, it's so it's it's it's, one, it's it's a mixture of it, but it's it's a funny thing because you'll see all like these. Uh, my travel, like if I'm traveling for an, a high profile event, you'll see this mix in my bag because I'll, I'll go for six weeks on, on a carry-on, you know, like I don't need anything else. And everything's polyester and everything is just my travel stuff there, all my pants and my, my these all these ex officio, you know, these, you know, the travel shirts and everything else and everything else. And that's what I travel in. But then there'll be like a French cuff sh- shirt and a blazer and, you know, slacks and, you know, all the other stuff that's there. Yeah. And so, um, uh, I was talking to my, my daughter was asking me like, why do you use French cuffs? And I'm like, that's, yeah, you know, it's a little pizzazz, you know, just a little pizzazz at the end and you, you, you work at it. And, and I, I am, a, a, I'm obsessed with cufflinks anyway. So that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother problem that I, I have a sickness of cufflinks. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, go ahead, Mitchell. The French cuff, uh, cuffs that are different color than the shirt. You got a blue shirt, white cuff, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Hey, here's the thing. Um, at least those, uh, those, whatever they are, I might have one on my shirt here, mm-hmm. um, that you, at least you can figure out what they might be for. Um, I don't know anybody that can read a QR code and mentally tell you exactly what it says. It just doesn't happen. I bet you there's somebody out there that can do that. Yeah, go ahead, Jesse. Uh, if, if your restaurant has a QR code only menu, there's no paper menu, uh, we will walk out immediately. Uh, I, I don't trust any QR code that I don't know where it's coming from. What's funny is, is that I'm the opposite. I just, um, I will not go to a, a restaurant twice if I can't use my Apple Pay <laughs> or, or, or any, any, there's no location that I'll go to twice. Like I write it off. Um, like I just, if I can't do Apple Pay, I'm like, well, I'll never come back here again. So then I, you know, and so, um, uh, oh, by the way, just because we're talking about cufflinks, I, just, I got some new ones. They're really good. Look at this. Wait, hold on. See if it focuses. See that? You see the little, like, it's like little gears. It's like gears on a cufflink. I just thought that was the best. Anyway, this is what happens when you don't ask enough questions and we have time. Next question. Next question from Paul Kovacs in Elkhart, Indiana. Might have missed this from past shows, but wondering what Alex thinks about the future with ATSC 3.0 for local and national broadcasters, and will this help compete with the streaming industry? Nope. Streaming uh, broadcast is dead. <laughs> like, you know, you know, broadcasters have to figure out a way to stream. I, I think it's great that it's out there. It's just that it's too hard now. And now the streaming stuff is picking up speed and everything is happening so quickly. It'll, there's still a population that will still use these for a while, but it's not, it's, it's on a downward trend and there's nothing that's going to stop that. I think that any, any thought that, that, that some piece of technology is going to turn this upward is, there's a lot of wishful thinking there. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, ATSC 3 is, the problem is it's not a mandatory adoption uh, with a drop-dead date yet, so it's very slow rollout in very very many cities. I have it on my Samsung TV as a new-gen, next-gen TV receivers and ATSC 3 receiver in it, and it does include uh, digital two-way, you know, exchange uh, of data other than just broadcasts. So, you know, it could make some inroads, but the problem is adoption is so slow, it's going to take at least 10 years, uh, and they're going to have to eliminate ATSC-1 from TV sets before it's adopted completely. Well, and again, in 10 years, it'll be gone. Like, you know, like like, like broadcast, broadcast as we know it will be uh, gone in 10 years unless we, you know, I don't don't know any way to change that, the direction of that trajectory. Um, I think we have to be realistic here. Uh, Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael, could you see the Blackmagic uh, camera app introducing an OSC or a similar API for remote control? I could see some use cases for it if you could control an iOS device camera from an ATEM. Jesse? Uh, Blackmagic's really, really good about continuing to support and develop their product line and their software line. Uh, that said, I, I don't see a world in which you're controlling your iPhone from an ATEM. They're, they're so, the, the company is so particular about um, using you know, open connectivity for all of their devices to, to lock into that one ecosystem and have a, a back and forth dialogue with your ATEM seems... Seems unlikely until until you remember that uh, you can plug your iPhone into the ATEM as is and use it as a as a, um, a network uplink if you if you want to broadcast. So m maybe maybe I I see I'll, I'll beg to differ on this one. I I think that uh, the ATEM because they own the app and the ATEM, the chances of uh, the item eventually being able to shade the camera on the iPhone is almost 100% in the next, by, by NAB. Next NAB, not this one that's coming right up, but by that by the NAB, the idea of being able to shade it even remotely. Imagine being able to link a, uh, a Blackmagic camera streaming SRT back to your um, switcher anywhere in the world and you being able to shade that camera. Like that's what Blackmagic could do, and I think that that's what they will do eventually. Uh, next question. Next question in from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Our Zopia has a $65 15-inch TikTok store mobile monitor at 1080p. Is that a good buy? It depends. It probably puts a picture out. Um, the question is, is does it have... Uh, uh, you know, does it have a, uh, for me, it has to have a visa mount. Like if it doesn't have a visa mount, I'm not going to get it because I can't figure out what to do with it. Um, but, uh, but I think that um, I have one that's made by Niuto, uh, N-I-U-T-O, that does have a visa mount. And um, it was about the same price. I go according. That's a pretty good price, but make sure it's an IPS monitor and make sure you check the screen brightness on it because some of those are not very bright. The LED backlights are not very bright. Um, and, yeah, make sure the H has HDMI and uh, USB-C input. So it has a lot of them will have a USB-C, two USB-C inputs, one for power and one for power and video. So you can use a single cable to plug into a Mac or uh, MacBook Pro or whatever type of uh, laptop you want to plug it into to extend your screen as long as it has a video over USB-C. So make sure of those things and check the brightness and make sure it's an IPS display. It is kind of amazing how cheap these monitors have gotten. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, the conventional wisdom is that a 16-inch MacBook Pro is better, but would an external monitor like a 17-inch 4K Uperfect uh, connected to a 14-inch MacBook Pro be a solid balance of portability and flexibility for most production tasks? My M2 Pro Mac Mini is my main machine. Good, Jesse. Oh, for sure. Yes. Yes. I would absolutely have an external monitor for any laptop I use. And anytime I'm using a laptop uh, in the office or uh, yeah, on a job site, we bring in a, an extra monitor just for that. That said, um, my concern with uh, the, the laptops is uh, the heat, heat dissipation. And the 14-inch will have uh, worse heat dissipation than the 16-inch just because it has less metal through which to, to dissipate all that heat. Um, so if you, I, I, be, I believe that this might be going back to a question from a couple of days ago about um, uh, running perpetual video on a laptop. 
but uh, uh, and that's why I'm talking about heat dissipation so so adamantly. But yes, always have a, an external monitor for your laptop, especially if it's a, a smaller screen. Go ahead, Courtney. And if that external monitor doesn't have its own power supply, if you're pulling power for the external monitor over the USB-C cable, just bear in mind that your battery life is going to do- go down quite a bit uh, if you're running on batteries and not carrying around your power back power brick. Well, good Saturday morning. Thanks, everybody, for all the questions. Uh, Thanks to our producers for the great questions that uh, you put in there and kept us rolling here. Uh, Thanks to the panelists. Can't do this without you. And thanks to the incredible team on the back end that makes all of this possible. Uh, You know, it's it's really fun. These Saturdays are going to be really fun tests. Um, I think I think now people are starting to get there, starting to see it. You can always watch it. Uh, either on an HDR monitor um, with a, you know set-top boxes that's like an Apple TV or a Chromecast or many of the other ones that support HDR, uh, you should be able and let us know how it looks. Um, we had I had a, I had some technical issues before the show, so I wasn't able to quite get set up to do what I wanted to do today. But next week you should see us play with this a little bit more um, as we kind of push the envelope of of what this looks like. You'll see us starting to do individual shading on everybody. We've now piped out all of that in, so it's it's relatively straightforward and. Um, I, uh, I'm hoping to get out this weekend to start shooting some HDR countdown clocks. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that in the not too distant future. So we can, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to be, uh, uh, going on grabbing those along with ambisonic sound that we can use for the opens. Um, so, so stay tuned for, uh, I know, I know, you know, you probably don't even know where to go shoot HDR countdown clocks. I mean, they're just floating in the air in the middle of nowhere. Every once in a while, you just, you'll be walking along in Mount Tam and you'll just see a countdown clock and you can shoot it there. I just so pull I'll them off of SpaceX when they're doing a launch, yeah, which exactly. happens about every two days. No, they're just like a countdown. Just, it's like, you know, oh, there's a countdown clock there. So I'm going to, that's the, that's the, the, um, that's what I am, what I'm trying to imagine is for the countdown clocks is I was just walking along and I saw a countdown clock and I, and I shot it. So what I'm doing is shooting some reflection maps and, and HDR, uh, lighting maps and then background plates and i know it, it, so i'm taking uh countdown clocks to another uh level i'm working on building the countdown clocks in cinema 40 and <laughs> so anyway so it's um it should be fun anyway uh so um so stay tuned for um for those things but we'll keep on playing with this we're gonna every saturday uh we'll be doing these tests um uh every saturday we'll be doing this as a test again full week on thanksgiving week full week on Christmas week. And then our goal is that by January 1st, we just commit to doing um, a full on uh, uh, HDR 4K every day. So um, so stay tuned for as we kind of move forward and give us your feedback on it. Also look at it later. It'd be really interesting to see what people see. What we think is happening is it looks one way in live and then it looks another way in in VOD about a day later. So um, let us know how that looks as well. And we'll talk more about it. You're more than welcome to bring it up on Sunday and we can chat about it a little bit. Another quick reminder also that we have a panelist meeting. If you're interested in being on the panel and joining us here um, at nine o'clock, that's in about 20 minutes, we're going to do it. You can... I think if you sign up, we can still figure that out or just ping me or Mitch because <laughs> he just reminded me um, on, on Discord. We'll make sure that you have the, uh, but you can go to officehours.global slash panelist and sign up and we'll make sure that everybody gets invited even if it's the next 20 minutes. Um, so if you're interested in asking questions about being a panelist um, or you've already been a panelist, you have more questions, or if you if you are interested in being a panelist, we're going to do that once a month. We'll have a half an hour just to just to chit chat. So um, so jump in. We'll be doing that in about twenty minutes. Here we traveled seventy thousand miles. It's one hundred twelve thousand kilometers, and that is um, five hundred and fifty five million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. <laughs> 